Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. This podcast is part two of a three-part series on ethics in the kingdom of God. And these teachings from Jesus are found in Mark chapter 10, and today we're going to talk about money. Wow, as if marriage and divorce weren't a hot-button issue enough, Uh, but like the last episode, the session here is not another rule or a legal argument, but rather a reminder of the difference between our confusing means and ends. A lot of people know this story. We call it the story of the rich young ruler because Matthew's gospel calls him young and Luke calls him a ruler. But let's read it and see if we can find something new. This is Mark chapter 10, beginning with the 17th verse, and I'm going to read to verse 31. It goes like this. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Well, right away we see the story's different. Unlike the Pharisees of the last scene, this man has a true heart. He kneels in respect, and he calls Jesus good teacher. This is no trap. He really wants to know, which is a better thing to say to Jesus, but still inadequate. So he asks Jesus, what must I do? I've got a little story that I connect in my own life with this this story from Jesus. Um, On the night before I was ordained a priest in Montgomery, uh, the word got around and even got to my bishop that I owned a pair of alligator shoes. I worked in a fancy men's clothing store before I went to um, seminary and had a healthy discount, and I had a pair of alligator shoes. And the bishop was aghast, and he walked into the library where we were all preparing for the service and preparing uh, for the ceremony, putting on our vestments and such. And he said, it's come to my attention that you own a pair of alligator shoes. And I looked at the bishop, and I wasn't lying. I said, Bishop, I gave them to the poor. So there was my uh, rich young ruler story related to this. But here, I want to make a note with this because we tend to think that this is punitive, right? That Jesus thought the guy was bad for having some wealth. 
There's nothing negative for Jesus to say here. He doesn't even take this man's question in a negative way. He sees this young guy as a good guy. It's just a logical question for someone who has built wealth. I happen to serve a church in an affluent suburb, and this has its challenges. I love my congregation. I've been here a long time and plan to be here for much longer. But our people here in my church are overscheduled, and this is all ages. The congregation is driven. They're all focused to stay ahead, and this can be exhausting for them, for children and for the very old. We try to make it look easy. We look like ducks on a pond gliding on the surface, but down below, we paddle so hard to stay ahead. Money can be debilitating in that way, and Jesus knew it. Now, as we think about the role of money in our lives, I'm going to take us far away from the world of Jesus just for a second to a place called Corinth, which is an important place that you can find in the backs of your Bibles, two letters from Paul and in Acts chapter 18. And Corinth is significant because it was a wealthy city in the eastern Mediterranean and far from the general poverty of Judea. And really, if you want to just kind of get your mind around why Corinth matters, uh, St. Paul would visit Corinth on the second of three business trips in that part of the world, and in the year 51, he would start a church. And then later, he would write them. We have two letters to the Corinthians in our Bibles today, and these written letters were intended to be letters to the editor, read in public, and they're very common in the Roman world. And in Acts chapter 18, we're told that Paul would meet upon arriving in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish people expelled from Rome and living in Corinth. And here's my point. They had money to found this church. Hey, here's where I'm going. I'm going to add to say that the Bible doesn't tell us that money is bad. In a letter later attributed to Paul, which would be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, we're told that the love of money is the root of all evil. But that little lesson is about us, not about money as a tool. Sometimes money can be a tool for good. In my own church, I'm learning that money is a love language for many people, that building wealth is a gift, like knowing how to sing or to play the piano. So Paul would teach all of his church members, including the wealthy, to leverage all of their gifts to build up the body of Christ. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 12, 48, to be precise, Jesus would say, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. No, this story is not about the man's money. It's about the man. So Jesus leads him on a little exercise in learning the difference between means and ends. And like the last scene, he directs him to the Ten Commandments, which are the ends, right? God's ends for us, God's purpose for our relationship with each other and with God. And specifically, he takes him to the ethical part so that he can begin to inventory his own life. Before we get there, I want to tell you about something. You know, a nut for archaeology. In 2019, right before the COVID lockdown, in an ancient city called Bet Shemesh, which means House of the Sun, in a tell, which means an artificial mound left by generations and centuries of cities built on top of each other, they found a stone which they have discovered and identified as a stone that upon which the Ark of the Covenant rested, as told in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Now, I've had friends ask me, now, how would an archaeologist know that the Ark of the Covenant, which means the Ten Commandments within them, how would they know that the Ten Commandments rested upon a rock uh, in the middle of a field in Israel? Well, 
You begin with Scripture. The story tells us that the ark had been lost in battle and then returned to this place, Bet Shemesh. And then you look at pottery fragments and you date the soil. And then they notice that there's a chapel built around it with two sacrificial stones, which means stones with drainage for uh, animal sacrifice. And then the dimensions of the ark match the dimensions of the stone. And the conclusion is that the Ten Commandments rested here. But it was a miracle they got it back. Um, the high priest Eli's own sons used it as a totem in battle, and they lost it. They believed if they had this, this, this symbol, if you will, no harm would come to them. But before we blame Eli's sons or blame the ancient Hebrews for being reckless with something so precious as the Ten Commandments, there's something very human in our need for, for our own symbols or even our own totems. In the, up in the Galilee, so Bet Shemesh is down near Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the coast. Up in the Galilee, just northwest of the Sea of Galilee, you can actually see it from there, is an extinct volcano called the Horns of Hattin. And there was an important battle there, July 4th, 1187. Fascinating story. It was a great battle between the Crusader states of the Levant and the forces of the great Sultan Saladin. Uh, for reasons too many to list here, Saladin was just done with the crusader presence in Jerusalem and beyond. And so he lures this crusader army onto this mountain, this extinct volcano, which has no water source, and the fields are hot. It was a hot Galilean summer, and they set the fields ablaze. Uh, they have this really dry grass here with no water, and the crusaders just perished with heat. Uh, in addition to the battle, they're broiling inside of their armor. Uh, they have nothing to drink. Uh, and so with this, the, the battle... With this battle that ensued, the Crusaders lost everything. They lost their entire army. They lost their presence in the kingdom of Jerusalem. But more significantly, they lost what they believed to be the true cross of Christ. It was a cross that had been exhumed upon the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the fourth century. Uh, they carried it believing if they had Jesus on cross, nothing would happen to them. And according to legend, it was carried uh, inverted on a lance to the, to the city of Damascus in capture, never to be found again. Here's my point. We often confuse means and ends, whether it's the Ten Commandments or a cross or a holy medal or the churches that we attend or the places perhaps where we've been baptized. God is not a totem or a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm. God wants relationship with us and not a deal. Clean noses aren't even enough. So Jesus takes them to the Ten Commandments, but to what they say, not what, what they are, uh, and he takes them to the people part. So he says, okay, take a look at your life. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no cheating. Honor your father and your mother. Young man has these down pat. He always has. But remember, those are the six. There are four others, and these involve our relationship with God. And in this man's case, we're going to see that his wealth was a burden to his soul. There is a spot that I love in Israel, down in the Negev Desert, in the biblical town of Beersheba. It's an old, 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 old town. And in Genesis 26, chapter 25, we're told that Isaac built a well there, dug a well. And you can find that well today. And that well is the site of a family tragedy, as one chapter before in the book of Genesis, Esau would sell his birthright to his younger brother Jacob. 
which is something that should have never happened. And we might wonder how God allowed it all to happen in the first place, how Jacob could steal the blessing and carry on the name until we read a little verse in Genesis chapter 25, verse 27, describing Jacob as a quiet man or a simple man, which is odd because I think we know probably more about Jacob than any other figure in the Hebrew Scriptures and maybe the entire Bible because Jacob's the only guy we know from birth to childhood to young adulthood to middle age and then old age. And I wouldn't use quiet to describe Jacob. He's always tricking and he's always moving and he's always running and he's always doing something and he's always growing. But that word that we translate quiet or simple is a is a hard Hebrew word to translate, but it really means more specifically that Jacob had a true heart. In spite of it all, Jacob had a true heart and God can work with those. So here's where I'm going. This is not a money story. It's a call story. Jesus believes in this man. He believes he can be a disciple. This is the only story in Mark where someone responds by not following back. His wealth is a burden to his soul. A couple years ago, I had the great thrill of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. I was with a couple of guys, Momi and Michelle, and basically a John boat with some oars on the side. Uh, These guys were rough. We fished along the coast where Peter and Andrew and James, all those guys would have fished. Uh, Jesus would have been with them. We fished right there in front of Capernaum and, and, and the place where Jesus fed thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and a few fish. I mean, we were right there living the Bible, and we worked hard. We fished pretty much all day, pulling up fish, but there was also a little bit of fighting going on. Uh, I didn't. I was just an accomplice. I kept the boat steady while Momi and Michelle fought someone who put their nets in the wrong place, and I thought, wow, these guys not only work hard, but they fight hard every day, and these were the first disciples. You might say that Momi and Michelle aren't college material, and yet these are the first disciples. These were rough guys, and yet Jesus called them to follow because they had true hearts, and they left everything. In Mark chapter 1, verse 16, you really see the contrast uh, between this, this rich young ruler who can't let it go and the true hearts of the disciples. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. It would take something compelling to punch through the crust of these rough guys, but God sees true hearts. And quoting Jeremiah 16, 16, he invites them to be catching people now, and now they are in the game but not this man in Mark chapter 10. His money holds him back. And he uses an illustration to show what happens. Um, so at Christmas time this year, I told my staff I wanted a camel for St. Luke's. Now, they thought I meant a real camel, and I think you can rent camels around here. We've got a nearby zoo, but that's not what I intended. I wanted a big old stuffed camel, and by golly, two of my parishioners made the best-looking camel, almost life-size, that you've ever seen. And I'm going to use this camel. It was a picture opportunity for Christmas Eve, but I'm going to use this camel to teach our children the story because I'm going to hold up a needle and compare it to this camel and say that Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of this tiny needle than for one with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a story I've grown up with in my 
Baptist Sunday school days, Mr. Hill would teach the primary two class, which is just a bunch of little boys, and we're all running around. And Mr. Hill said that there was a gate outside of this old city of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And a camel, if a camel would squat down just enough, a camel could squeeze through. It would be hard, but the camel could squeeze through and enter the city. That's not what Jesus said. Uh, it's not about a gate. Uh, there was no gate called the Eye of the Needle. What it's about, it's about a, it's about a needle, and it's about a camel, which is to say that with human beings, everything's impossible, but with God, everything can happen. It is possible. It's related to the earlier lesson about adultery and remarriage. I mean, what Jesus does is he says something extreme and beyond our reach and then fills it with grace. We're always, always, always saved by grace, not by what we do. Christianity is the one religion we cannot accomplish on our own. No one is perfect as our Father is perfect. No one can forgive 77 times. No one has a pure heart in the way that God asks for a pure heart. And even Peter's own declaration about giving it all away isn't good enough. Yes, there are rewards, but persecutions too, and none of it's perfect. Our faith is not an investment scheme. Our faith is not a portfolio. Our faith is beyond what we've accomplished and, and how we identify ourselves. Our faith is beyond even our greatest, our greatest rewards. Rather, the reward for following Jesus, for discipleship, is discipleship. God is calling. Will we get in the game? Well, thanks for joining me, friends, and I hope we'll see you next week because we're going to finish this three-part session on the role of status in the kingdom of God. See you then.